Minor Prophet study that we've been traveling through. And today we're going to Zephaniah. So I'll go ahead and help you with that. Just go to Matthew and go backwards about three or four books and you'll find Zephaniah. It's very small, three chapters. going to read the first uh, seven verses. I'm really just doing an introduction today, but um, you know, I'll get back to especially the passage that Brian read because that sets the context of where Zephaniah fits into history. And it says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. In the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. So out of the minor prophets that we have studied thus far, this might be the one that most of us are most unfamiliar with, I would assume. Does anybody re- recall a sermon or a Sunday school lesson uh, or anything that you've ever done from the book of Zephaniah? Did you even realize that there was a book of Zephaniah? Actually, there's two or three other people named Zephaniah, including, I think, one of the kings of Israel back uh, 100 or so years prior to this. But I get it. Uh, this is the first time I've ever preached or taught from it also. Maybe I've quoted from it, but very rarely. Um, but this Zephaniah is a prophet to Judah during the reign of King Josiah. Somewhere around 640 to 609 B.C. is where this lands. Now, our last study was in Nahum, who you may recall was preaching to Assyria, the brutal empire, who's at the point of taking Israel captive at that time um, of names preaching and now that has happened at this point in time and they're at the door of Judah as well and there are times if you read 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles you'll see where Judah is taken captive by Assyria then uh, one of their kings will repent and God will restore them and that's kind of where we are right now when we pick up um, Zephaniah's preaching is this king that we probably know him if you grew up in church and Sunday school as good King Josiah. This is one of the good ones. Very few uh, were considered or called good. But we'll get back to him in a minute. This Josiah comes along after um, one who was very evil I think his name was Amon, and then Hezekiah, who 
did right in the sight of the Lord, but then started doing wrong again and was taken, about to be captured by Assyria until the Lord uh, killed all the military warriors of Assyria and saved Hezekiah because of his repentance. And then Hezekiah led a lot of reforms in Judah, in Jerusalem. But this gave way to his son Manasseh, who reigned in his place and again did evil in the sight of the Lord, raised back up the pagan altars, uh, put pagan worship places in the temple of God, even sacrificed his own sons to uh, a fake false god in the fire. You can read all that in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Um, it's just a, an amazing up and down journey of Judah at this time of good kings or bad kings that sometimes do well but most of the time do what the Bible calls evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, I got that in the wrong order. After Hezekiah, then his son Ammon reigned, did evil. And this led to his son Josiah who was brought to the throne at eight years old. He became king at eight. Which is an amazing thought. And this happened often. But somebody pointed out there must have been some good folks around him caring about him, concerned about him, making sure that the right things were happening because he was eight years old. So he had to have some help. But the Bible tells us that in the eighth year of Josiah's reign, he began to seek the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. We read that a few minutes ago from 2 Kings 22. What could have made or led him to begin seeking the Lord around the time he was 16 years old? Well, many believe it just might have been the preaching of Zephaniah because he came along about the time he, Josiah, became king and Zephaniah began preaching. And of course, we have this letter, this book, this sermon that he preached around 640. Zephaniah doesn't mention the reforms that Josiah will make, and we'll talk about those in a minute. And so a lot of people believe that he must have preached or began preaching when prior to the reforms. And so some people believe maybe the preaching of Zephaniah helped soften the heart of Josiah and prepare him for what was about to happen, what we read about a while ago, the discovery of the Word of God that had been silent or been hidden underneath all the pagan worship stuff in the temple for 60 plus years. Maybe many more years than that. They were just practicing whatever because they had no God. They had no word of the Lord. Even when the kings were doing well, they did not have the word of God to go by. Now, just continuing the introduction here, we don't know a lot about Zephaniah. He gives us his lineage. Uh, all the way back to Hezekiah, which a lot of people believe was the king Hezekiah. Some people believe it wasn't. Some people believe it does. It was him. If it was him, that gives good reason to believe that he did have an ear with Josiah because he would have been part of the royal family. He would have been given access to the king and could have definitely spoken words of truth to the king. <clears throat> now, like with all the prophets... Their names are very important because a lot of times that's the only thing we know about them is what their names reveal to us. Zephaniah means the Lord is hidden or the Lord has hidden. 
Some believe since Zephaniah would have been born in the days of one of the evil kings that he mentions in his lineage, his parents maybe gave him this name because of the darkness that surrounded Judah at the time, the very bleak time spiritually that was so evil. And it seemed that perhaps the Lord had been hidden from His people. So maybe this is why Zephaniah has this name. Or possibly it is prophetic looking ahead to the next chapter of Zephaniah. Prophetic toward a time of judgment where we read this, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So maybe Zephaniah's name was prophetic and it's not that God was hidden, but it was a prayer from his family that on the great day of the Lord, God would hide his people. And that Zephaniah was one of God's people. And they would be hidden from the judgment. Because God speaks often, and even in this book and other of the minor prophets as well, that on the day of judgment, God will, though he will judge his people with the world, he will not judge his people like the world, and he will save his people out. In a sense, he will hide them from his wrath. And of course, we can look and see down through the ages and know that ultimately this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because God's wrath was, so to speak, we were hidden from it because we were blank, we were blanketed by Jesus and we didn't receive the wrath that we deserve. Now this book, like the other minor prophetic books, is a book of judgment because the sin of God's people and the sin of those all around God's people, God is getting ready to judge them. The last book, Nahum, God was getting ready to judge Assyria, which is not His people, the enemies of God. Many of the prophets we've already studied were preaching to Israel, warning them of their coming captivity. And now Zephaniah is warning, as will Habakkuk and Jeremiah also, who is a contemporary at this time, will warn of the coming captivity, of course, of Babylon. So that's in the near future now. Less than, uh, I think, 20, 30 years away from Zephaniah, Judah will be led away by, by Babylon. So this is a book of judgment. And it's probably why, again, like all the others, it's not real famous and not real popular because as I just read the first seven verses to you, who wants to preach from the Lord is about to wipe every living thing off the face of the planet? It's kind of hard to squeeze in a good message of uh, hope and and uh, joy from the Lord's going to wipe off everything, including birds of the air and uh, beasts of the field and every human that's breathing and living. But this is, of course, not only uh, a picture or a prophecy of the coming leading away into Babylon, but it's ultimately uh, going to be fulfilled in the great day of the Lord of Jesus Christ when He comes back to destroy evil and sin forever and reign uh, for all eternity. Uh, in the new heavens and new earth. And so the book of Zephaniah, the major really theme of it is the great day of the Lord. In fact, if we keep reading, and we will uh, probably next week, even in the first chapter, about five or six times along, there is allusion to that day or the great day of the Lord or just the day of the Lord. And um, so, though there's a lot of doom and gloom in this, as with other prophets, there is still a message of hope. And I mean, I love these books because this is a realistic view of where we are. If we look around right now, where we live, uh, 
to the north, to the south, across the ocean. I mean, we read about the persecuted church. This is a place that is wicked, and this world is full of sinfulness and utter depravity. And so it's a lot like this day that we read about. It's funny that we read these prophets and think, man, these people are so bad. Look at what they were doing. And fail to realize that it's not... If it's any worse than our day, it can't be much worse. I don't know how. It could be worse. They were filling God's temple with false, uh, idolatrous worship rituals and statues. And it's not hard to go very far down the road into evangelical churches and find just as many statues, just as many false worshiping uh, avenues as any of these people have. We, like them, even though it hasn't been buried away for years, we have hidden the Word of God a lot of times and we just do whatever we feel like is good in hopes of drawing a big crowd and getting lots of people. Because we don't want to read this. Who wants to read this? Who wants to be this kind of prophet? Who wants to show up to the king and say, God's about to destroy everything you're looking at? People don't like that kind of prophecy. You remember, I think it was uh, Amos or, that was told by the king of Israel, just go back where you came from. Nobody wants to hear that. There'll be somebody over there who want to hear that message, but not here. And so, this is where Zebaniah finds himself. This is, of course, as he testifies, the word of the Lord, though. So he doesn't dare change it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He just puts it out there. But I do hope to point out a little bit today, but certainly in the future, there's great hope in this. The day of the Lord is great hope. We, as God's people, look forward to the day of the Lord. Not just now, the day we live in. This is part of the day of the Lord, but that great and final day when Jesus returns. As, as Michael read from 2 Peter chapter 3, hey, knowing what's coming, what manner of persons ought we to be? How ought we to be living knowing what's about to take place? Because just like God promised through the prophetess to Josiah, I'm about to destroy this place, but I'm going to hide you and keep you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually what you'll find out, I'm going to kill you before then so your eyes don't even have to see that. See, that's even contrary to our thinking. Wait, King Josiah, he was good and he, God killed him? Yeah, he killed him in mercy so he didn't have to see that God was about to kill everything around him and destroy it. He took him out before then. It's hard for us to imagine in our culture that tragedy and death, God can use those things for good too. Man, we gotta have. We better have that view of life, or it's gonna be a sad life. Because I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of death and sorrow around us. But Zephaniah does have a hope, a hopeful message. It's not just about gloom and doom. Because even though there is punishment and is imminent, there is restoration on the horizon, and that's the message of all these prophets. In fact, the only time that Zephaniah is quoted in the New Testament is in Revelation chapter 14 and 5, which comes from Zephaniah 3.13. We're not there yet, but it's a reference to the remnant of Israel and the security that they will enjoy once they have been restored by God. And it's quoted in Revelation in reference to a scene in heaven where the redeemed around the throne are singing a new song given to them by God. It is a message of hope. It's not just doom and gloom. And we, we point this out all the time. The message of hope and joy and mercy and grace makes no sense, makes no sense if it's not preached against the backdrop of how bad things are. 
We can't start out telling people, you're so good and God loves you so much, has a plan for your life. We need to tell people the real condition of what people are facing. No, you are sinful and utterly depraved apart from God. You are wicked. I know that's not a fun thing to think about, but that's what the Bible says about us. But it also says about us, even though we are sinful and wicked and depraved and utterly desperate in need of a Savior, God has provided all that. And so our hope is not that one day I'll quit being evil and I'll quit being, uh, I'll quit thinking badly and I'll quit doing bad things. My hope is that God, in perfect time, sent His Son, who was without sin, to redeem those under the law that we might be called children of God. That is the good news. And it makes no sense apart from the backdrop of the bad news. We can't save ourselves. So that's sort of the introduction to Zephaniah. And I want to go back to this historical setting, the contextual setting for the message that I want to give to you in the next few minutes. This young King Josiah, and I will be reading back if you want to flip back to 2 Kings chapter 22, but I'm mostly going to read 23. Because I think it's important to just wrap our minds around, I don't know about you, but these Old Testament prophets and, and spitting these dates out, it's kind of hard to keep up with where we are. But I think it's important to see what's going on here with this king because I think it has a lot to do with us and it will give us some contemporary application. Josiah, as I mentioned several times, at eight years old, comes to the throne, protected, groomed, still had to come to age and make decisions for the kingdom. He had to rule. And perhaps, as I mentioned, maybe this is a cousin, Zephaniah, if he's not even, perhaps his heart, the heart of the king is being softened even at a young age and prepared for what is about to take place. And what is about to take place is this discovery of the book of the law. And I think King Josiah, from reading this book of the law and realizing that his people, the people that he ruled over, and his fathers and the fathers before them, have broken the covenant of God. This is the law of God that he's reading. It's basically the, the books of Moses. What we would call the Old Testament. The Pentateuch. Those first five books, he discovers that his people have broken the covenant. And they've been living as pagans, though they're not supposed to be pagans. They are the people of God, and so he is cut to his soul. He's already been being softened, perhaps, by the preaching of somebody like Zephaniah, being prepared, his heart, you could say the soil or the ground of his heart is being prepared for the seed of the Word of God that's about to be planted. And suddenly the covenant of God is discovered. And what a sad state of affairs it is. The people of God, the highly favored people of all the peoples on earth, the people to whom God had sent the prophets and the angels, the people to whom God had spoken and revealed His name to, nobody else on earth had God spoken to like this. And He revealed His name to them. They had so buried themselves in their sin that the very word that God had given them, the most sacred of all writings ever to existed, lay buried along with their sin 
in the rubbish of their idolatry. They didn't even know they had this. But it was found. And as soon as Josiah, who had ears to hear and heard what was written, he instantly knew that what his people were facing were the curses of the covenant. And you can go back and read that. When God made that covenant, He said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people and you'll be blessed among all the people of the earth if you don't do this. And one of the things specifically was you don't attach yourself to these people that I'm, I'm, I'm renovating, I'm, I'm getting out of this land and certainly don't worship their gods. Yet here the people are doing just opposite of that. And so they were under the covenant curses. And that's what the prophetess spoke. This word of truth. Josiah, you'll be delivered by mercy, but this nation will be destroyed. <coughs> now I love the fact that even though he got this word from God, because he sent to this prophetess, give me a word back from the Lord. What do I do about this? What does this mean? Oh, what it means, Josiah, is that God's about to wipe these people out. He's, he's been long-suffering, patient, generation after generation, but he's about to destroy them. But I love that that didn't stop Josiah from doing what was right. He didn't just throw his hands up and go, well, then we might as well just live and live it up because judgment's coming. No, he did everything he could think of, it seems. Tried with all his might to eradicate every abominable thing from the land and the temple and call the people to repentance. See if I can pick this up. Um, Let's look at verse 20, uh, chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king kept up to the, uh, went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar, and he made a covenant. He made a covenant before the Lord, to walk after the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all His heart and His soul and perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he, he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places of the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and the host of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought out all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places and the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. And you can just keep reading that on and on. He's, and he reinstitutes sacrifices and he gets the people back to worshiping. He literally tries to eradicate every abominable thing from the land in the temple and call the people to repentance. And though his repentance was genuine, obviously the repentance of the nation was short-lived because the very next king, Josiah only lives to about um, the age of 30 to 40, 
And the very next king, his own son, destroyed all of his reforms, all the progress of Josiah, plummeted the nation back into idolatry. <coughs> Obviously, they were more than eager to accept back the abominations. Now, I guess that sounds amazing, but easily would be repeated in our day. If there was ever anybody come along and say, hey, let's do away with all this nonsense and, and God-hating immorality and let's set some things back in order. First of all, there would be uh, quite, um, quite a protest to begin with. But it would be no time to just take one more leader to come along and say, oh, that stuff wasn't good. I mean, we kind of see this in our country, don't we? One president sets this in motion, the next one comes along and says, all that stuff he did was bad, I'm undoing all of it, putting my new place in order. And then four years later, if, if we're lucky, it's only four years, they back and they do it again, undo it. It's just a, a repetitive, um, awful cycle. And this is what was happening in Judah. Now, the point I want to make, and I'll try to make this quickly, we believe in reform. Reform is a good thing. And I appreciate this King Josiah because he said, I know that God's going to destroy this, but we're going to make some, I'm going to make some changes. It's almost like if my house is going down in flames, I at least want it to be in order before it goes down. We're going to set it in order. And, and thankfully he did. But reform is a good thing. Putting things in order, doing the right things. I mean, we carry the name Reformed Baptist because we believe that reform is good. That's who we are. We come from a long line of reform all the way back to the Reformation because we didn't, along with our forefathers, want to be Catholic. We solved the we solved the discrepancies and the false teaching and the false belief of salvation in that belief system and we want it out. And so we, along with them, we agree with that. We're thankful for the Reformation and we still reform. And we even hopefully believe in the... Um, battle cry of the Reformation which was reformed and ever reforming. So we believe in not just being reformed but keep on reforming in the sense that if we're not doing something right then Lord show us where we're wrong and make us right. And if our worship service is wrong, if we're doing things that aren't according to your word then fix that. We never want to be stuck in um, some kind of abominable tradition that we can't get out of without losing half our church because everybody gets mad because even though it's not rooted in the Bible, we've always done it that way. We're going to avoid that. We always want to be reforming, reforming, repenting and reforming. But that's my point. Reformation is a great thing, but reform does not always equal repentance. Back when we first began this journey of planting this church, I tried to point this out over and over. Maybe some of you remember these days back sitting in our living room talking about these things. How great an opportunity this was to be free and to try to get things right and set things in order because we thought that was so important and not be tied to tradition. But also that that's not a magical fix. We can be reformed as reform can be and doctrinally sound and hold to all the solas of the Reformation practice the regular principle and still be like the Pharisees and though our lips acknowledge God, our hearts could be far from Him. We don't want that. And I see that Josiah had to be fighting that. He had real repentance. His soul was torn to pieces. He tore his clothes. He was 
bent out of shape, as we might say. And he put all these reforms in place and the people agreed to it. But not even a generation later, they were just as willing to turn right back into their old ways. The reforms didn't change them. It didn't bring them real repentance. Now here's the point. All of us at some point have tried some reform personally too, haven't we? We've tried to stop doing something and start doing something else. And again, that's not a bad thing. There's some things we need to stop. There's some things that we shouldn't do. There's some things we should do. And all of us, if we're honest, would be able to say, there's a lot of things still in my life that I shouldn't be doing. There's a whole lot of things I should be doing that I'm not doing. And we recognize that. But what sometimes we fail to recognize, all the times we've quit this and started that all over in a, in a vicious cycle, we failed to remember that what we really need is repentance. Because I can start doing things right, but until I have a godly sorrow that leads to salvation, which is repentance, I'll just go right back and keep doing those things. And so I think I find myself too often being forgiven of my sin, but not really getting repentance for that sin, where I don't want to go back to it. And here's the God's honest truth. Sometimes I don't, I'm afraid to ask God to give me repentance because then I know if I have real repentance, I'll hate that sin and never go back to it. And that's what God, I think, is calling us to. Not I think, I know He is. Godly sorrow. Josiah didn't want to go back. He was done. He wasn't just reforming for the sake of saying we're going to do something new and different. He was reforming because it was right. He had opened the Word of God and saw what God expected and demanded of His people and that's what He wanted. Listen, sometimes I think we want all the people around us to do the right things, make changes, do good and be good, but what we really need to pray for our people that we love is that God give them repentance. And that they'll turn from their sin and it won't just be a reform, but it'll be a repentance that leads them to salvation. Essentially, Josiah brought theological and political reform. But still, God brought intense and swift judgment because the reform was so short-lived. That's why we're constantly... I want to constantly remind you, I'm with you that we need some political reform. And I'm with you that, at least in our country, there's one side that's better than the other side. For sure. But political reform will not fix what's really wrong. A godly sorrow is the only thing that will really fix what ails us. Second Corinthians 7 says, As it is, I rejoice not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss through us. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief, worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, and what punishment, literally what punishment of that sin you have felt. Because God gave you repentance. You're, really, you're ready to whoop that sin out. You don't want it to be a part of your life anymore. That's what repentance does. And here's the advantage we have over those in Josiah's day. We know that ultimate reform has been purchased for us by Christ. 
we do not have to be stuck in the same drudgery. We do not have to continue in the doing evil in the sight of the Lord or good in the sight of the Lord one day and evil in the next day and just repeat. The great day of the Lord is among us. It is here. That day when sin has been judged once for all. Yes, the complete fulfillment is still unfolding. But we are in that day. We, we don't look for a good king. We don't look to reform. Ultimately, we look to Christ. And though we ought, as Josiah did, based on what we read in the Word, based on the commands of the Lord, we ought to reform. And we ought to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race set before us. Absolutely we should. But when we find ourselves falling from the reforms that we have made, it is then that we cling to Christ and His righteousness in hopes that He gives us repentance that lasts and repentance that leads to salvation not to be regretted. My hope through these studies is that we see not just a bunch of history, but that we see Christ. That we hear the admonitions, we hear the rebukes, we hear the threatenings of judgment and the wrath, but we are reminded as was Josiah that God will ultimately hide us from His wrath. Hey, it may destroy all around us. We may not live. Josiah didn't live. Some of these Chinese Christians that we've spoken about in the last few weeks, some of them didn't live, some of them won't live. But God will hide them from His ultimate wrath. As Josiah says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Hidden away from the wrath and judgment. Safely kept and protected, just like Jesus Himself proclaimed to the Father in His great high priestly prayer where He said, I kept them, Father, in Your name, them which You have given Me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. That's the great hope we have. It's not in this world. It's not even in our reforms. It's in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, what a beautiful Word it is. And even in the midst of such judgment and threatenings of the Lord, and in such destruction and death and turmoil, yet there is hope for the people of God. And we cling to that because that's the world we still live in. All around us is death and dying and hurt and sorrow and sickness and pain. And those who would do us harm, those who would harm people for no reason, those who would hurt people just because they can, and Lord, you have promised that one day, because you are just, you will eradicate this world and this earth and your people. You will eradicate from them this kind of wickedness and this kind of sin. That is real justice. Surely we don't believe that everybody's going to be saved one day. What kind of heaven would that be if all the wicked, vile people that hate you and hate your people um, got heaven too? without repentance, without turning to you, without being redeemed. So God, we thank you that you have reached down and saved us, plucked us from this awful, ugly world and saved us based on no goodness in us, based on nothing that we've ever done, 
nothing that you saw in us, but, but by your grace and your favor alone, and for reasons we may never understand, you have chosen to save us, and we are grateful and thankful for that. And I pray you continue to save your people. And that people even here this morning will hear this gospel call that Jesus died, that you may live. He has hidden you as if to put you behind Himself and shielded you from the very wrath of God that you might instead receive redemption. I pray that your people will hear that and turn from their sin and turn to you and believe and be saved. I bless your people in your church in the work of the gospel. In Christ we pray. Amen.